Welcome to the sixth episode in our new series of audio briefings exploring key aspects of company law. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Suzanne Carney of Council in the Corporate and M&A Department in Arthur Cox. I'm Ashlyn Carey, Professional Support Lawyer in the Corporate and M&A Department in Arthur Cox. And I'm Tom Courtney, Partner in Arthur Cox. Today, as part of our Company Law Back to Basics series, we are focusing on shares and share capital as we consider the various types of shares which may be issued by a company and the restrictions on the alteration of share capital. Companies limited by shares must have a share capital, which represents the shareholders' interests in the company. Just to note, in today's episode, we're primarily discussing matters as they relate to private companies with a share capital. There are some exceptions in relation to companies who do not have a share capital and certain investment companies, in addition to the additional obligations which apply to public limited companies, particularly those who are listed. And those are outside the scope of today's podcast. Perhaps we might begin by covering some of the key concepts and terminology. A company's share capital is made up of the shares that it has issued to its members, whether on or subsequent to its incorporation. Tom, we use the term share capital, but the Companies Act 2014 actually uses the term company capital. That's right, Suzanne. While the former Companies Acts generally refer to share capital, the Act now regulates how companies deal with their company capital. Company capital is given a very technical definition in Section 64.1 of the Act, but it can be summarised as referring in the main to the total value of the consideration received by a company on the allotment of shares, i.e. the nominal value received for the share and any premium that might be paid. Ashling, maybe you could explain by what, what's meant by nominal value. Sure, Tom. The nominal value of a share, also known as its par value or face value, is its stated fixed monetary value, for example, one euro or one cent. The nominal value will generally not equate to the market value of that share. While the examples I gave are of shares with a nominal value in euro, there is no requirement that shares in an Irish company be denominated in euro, and in practice it is not uncommon to see shares denominated in other currencies, such as US dollars, or with one class of shares denominated in euro and a separate class of shares in pounds sterling or dollars. More commonly, a company will have shares all designated in euro, but with varying par value, for example, ordinary shares of one euro each, A ordinary shares of two euro each and preference shares of 50 cent each. And it's important to be aware that shares of a company may never be allotted at a discount to their nominal value, that is, at a subscription price which is below the nominal value. However, in this regard, we must distinguish this from shares which are partly paid up. Shares in private limited companies such as LTDs and DAX can be allotted and issues without in fact being paid for in full or even at all. In such circumstances, the shareholder to whom the shares are allotted will owe the outstanding consideration to the company. When a company wants to be paid for the amount outstanding, it is said to make a call on the shareholder and the law on calls uh, is now set out in the optional provisions of the Companies Act 2014. However, a share may be allotted at a price which is in excess of its nominal value. This goes to the point, Ashling, you mentioned earlier, that the nominal value, for example, shares of one euro each, will rarely represent the true market value of the share. Where a share is issued in excess of its nominal value, the difference between the nominal value and the price paid is known as the share premium. 
Simple way of example, where a share has a nominal value of one euro and is allotted at a subscription price of 10 euro, the share premium on that share will amount to nine euro. And Tom, as you mentioned, any share premium is also included within the company capital. That's right. And it's expressly acknowledged in the Act that a company may allot shares with different amounts payable on them, such that a premium may attach to some, but not all of the shares. Where a company issues shares at a premium, a sum equal to the aggregate amount of premium must be transferred to a share premium account so that it forms part of the company capital. That's the bit that's ring-fenced. There are restrictions on how the share premium account may be applied by the company, but it's beyond the scope of today's podcast, but perhaps it's a topic we can return to at a later date. Thanks, Tom. That's certainly a topic we could cover in a future episode. Another concept we will consider is the distinction between authorised share capital and the issued share capital of a company. Ashling, since the enactment of the 2014 Act, not all companies are required to have an authorised share capital. Yes, Suzanne, that's correct. Previously, it was a mandatory requirement for all companies to have an authorised share capital, but the Act provides a choice for LTDs on whether or not to have an authorised share capital. The authorised share capital is the amount of share capital expressed as the number and nominal value of shares into which it is divided. For example, €10,000 divided into 10,000 ordinary shares of €1 each. Often the amount of the authorised share capital will be several million euro, but this will often bear little or no relation to the issued share capital, which might in fact be just €1. That's very true, Tom. There is often a large amount of authorised but unissued share capital, commonly referred to as headroom. Where a company has an authorised share capital, that is, any LTD which is elected to have an authorised share capital, and all other companies limited by shares, the directors may not allot shares in excess of that authorised share capital. The issued share capital is the aggregate nominal value of all shares which have been issued, taken up by the members and are currently in issue. So the nominal value of the issued share capital of the company must always be less than or equal to the authorised share capital of the company. Where there is insufficient authorised share capital to issue the required amount of shares, it may be necessary to increase the authorised share capital by shareholder resolution. Yeah, I think the important point here for our listeners is that before allotting shares, the directors of a company should check the company's constitution to see if it has an authorised share capital, first of all, and if it has, whether there's capacity to issue more shares. If there isn't, it'll be necessary for the members to resolve in general meeting to increase the authorised share capital before new shares can be allotted. Another term we sometimes come across is equity share capital. Equity share capital means a company's issued share capital, excluding any part of it which carries a right to participate beyond a specified amount in a distribution of dividends or capital. Often in a company, there might be a class of shares whose right to participate in dividends and capital is capped at a certain limit, which leads us on to the next aspect of our discussion, that a company's share capital may consist of one or more classes of shares. The first point to note is that a company may issue all of its shares as a single class, usually referred to as ordinary shares. And it's important to realise that the Act does not refer to any particular class of classes of share, and many companies, particularly subsidiary companies in a group structure, will have shares of one class only. Most companies will not have different classes of shares, and where there is more than one shareholder, it will often be simply the size of the shareholding that distinguishes and differentiates the shareholders' rights, interests and obligations. But for some companies, having separate classes of share with varying rights remains an option. 
Different classes of shares are usually given distinguishing descriptions, such as ordinary shares, preference shares and deferred shares, or quite commonly A shares, B shares, A ordinary shares, B ordinary shares, etc. The names given to classes of share generally have no recognised statutory meaning and a company is free to choose whatever description it wishes for a class of shares. Such shares may also have varying nominal values and varying rights as set out in the Constitution, which may include rights in relation to voting, participation in dividends, participation in the winding up of a company, etc. Where classes are created with different rights, it's really important that this is done clearly and unambiguously because there is a presumption that all shares rank pari passu so that each share is presumed in law to carry the same rights, interests and obligations as every other share. So, Ashling, as you mentioned, the term ordinary shares is sometimes used to describe the shares in a company, which is only one class of shares. In addition, in companies which have different classes of shares, the ordinary shares generally refer to the classes of shares which confer on their holders the residual rights which have not been conferred on other classes. Another popular term for a class of shares, particularly where a company has external investors, are shares which carry a preferential right to a fixed dividend known as preference shares. Preference shares are usually expressed as a fixed annual percentage and sometimes referred to as a coupon rate, for example, 5% cumulative redeemable preference shares. This right will rank in priority to the rights of ordinary shareholders to a dividend. In addition, on winding up, preference shareholders may have a right to be repaid capital in priority to other shareholders. And turning to redeemable shares, these are shares that can be redeemed or purchased back from the holder by the company. While all shares can now be reacquired, there was a time when shares could not be acquired by a company and the exception to that rule was redeemable preference shares. Section 105 of the Act authorises a company to redeem shares. One welcome change proposed in the company's Corporate Enforcement Authority Bill 2021 is to remove the requirement that shares in an unlimited company may only be redeemed from distributable profits. This is currently an anomaly, given that an unlimited company can currently pay dividends without regard to its distributable profits. Yes, that will be a welcome change for unlimited companies. When shares have been redeemed in accordance with Section 105, as you mentioned, Tom, or a limited company has purchased its own shares in accordance with Section 102, the company may, instead of cancelling those shares, hold them as treasury shares. While the company holds shares as treasury shares, it may not exercise any of the usual rights attaching to those shares, such as dividend or voting rights. The nominal value of treasury shares held by a company may not at any time exceed 10% of the nominal value of the issued share capital of the company. Treasury shares may be reissued at a later date as shares of any class or classes. Treasury shares are included in the issued share capital of the company, but their reissue is not an increase in the issued share capital. You may hear the term bonus shares. Bonus shares are not actually a class of shares in themselves, but are shares which may be issued by a company to its members, usually in proportion to their entitlement to a dividend, on a bonus issue or capitalisation. No new funds are received by the company on a bonus issue. Instead, the company capitalises profits or revenue reserves or some permissible fund, such as the share premium account or the capital redemption reserve fund, and applies the proceeds in paying up bonus shares. A bonus issue will result in an increase in the company's issued share capital. A bonus issue may be used to pay up also any amounts outstanding on partly paid shares. We might move on briefly then to the alteration of share capital. 
Tom, Ashling, you both mentioned earlier that there may be circumstances where a company may need to increase its authorised share capital before allotting shares. However, this is not the only way in which the share capital of a company can be altered. The first point to note is that the Act contains a number of restrictions on the way in which a company can alter its share capital. And for good cause, Suzanne, the main reason why the Act imposes such restrictions is to protect creditors, a company's uh, share capital or company capital being perceived as a creditor's fund. In a failing company, its company capital will be the last resort available to creditors, and this explains the various restrictions on its reduction that exist in company law. A private company may vary or alter its share capital by, firstly, as I mentioned earlier, increasing its authorised share capital, if any, and this involves shareholder approval in the form of an ordinary resolution or by special resolution if the company is an unlimited company. Secondly, by increasing its issued share capital by the allotment and issue of new shares and generally the issue of any new shares is approved by resolution of the board of directors. Thirdly, by conversion of its shares into redeemable shares or finally, by consolidation or subdivision of its shares and again, an ordinary resolution or a special resolution in the case of an unlimited company is required. However, where a limited company wishes to reduce its share capital, the Act is far more restrictive for the reasons I just mentioned. A reduction of company capital may only be affected by employing the summary approval procedure or by passing a special resolution which is confirmed by the High Court. Prior to the 2014 Act, the only way capital could be reduced was by going to the High Court and seeking its approval. We discussed how the summary approval may be employed in an earlier episode for those that may wish to listen back. But a company with an authorised share capital may cancel any of its authorised but unissued shares, thereby reducing its authorised share capital. This cancellation of the authorised but unissued share capital does not amount to a reduction of share capital for the purposes of the Act. Going back to the scenario of a company with different classes of shares, the consent of holders to the variation of their class rights is often an area that we receive queries about, particularly in the context of an alteration of the share capital of the company. Tom, what tips would you have for our listeners in terms of identifying when class consents need to be obtained? Well, in a company without share classes, where all shareholders hold ordinary shares, their rights to dividend voting and participation on winding up will be equal in the sense that they are proportionate to the number of shares held. However, where there's more than one class of share, then differences in the rights enjoyed to dividend voting and participation on winding up between the different classes become class rights. Accordingly, care really needs to be taken to check whether any amendment to the share capital may also amount to a variation or abrogation of class rights. If it does, the consent from the holders of each class of shares will be needed. Thanks, Tom. I think that's a good point in which to conclude our discussion on shares and share capital. I hope our listeners found this episode useful. If you have any questions on anything we discussed today, or if there's any particular issue you would like to hear more about, please feel free to contact Tom, Ashling, or me, or your usual Arthur Cox contact. We'll be back next month with a new episode. And in the meantime, thank you for listening and goodbye. Mm-hmm.